Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I'm Nigel Griswold, co-founder and CEO of Dynamo Metrics and your host. In this episode, I'm joined by Doug Matthews, Assistant City Manager and Chief Administrative Officer for the City of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Doug oversees internal operational functions to include human resources, IT, performance management, communications, equity, and engagement. During his career, he has helped build open data, community engagement, and performance management programs for several cities, including Grand Rapids and Austin, Texas. He serves on the board of directors for the Alliance for Innovation and was recognized by the Obama administration as one of 11 champions for change and local government innovation. Our conversation covers the intersection and evolution of innovation and technology in local government, the mechanics of local government and software provider partnerships, as well as how the city of Grand Rapids is using technology to address the financial and economic implications of COVID and the current social equity movements. And now my conversation with Doug. Okay, so welcome to Ahead of the Curve. Today we have Doug Matthews, the Assistant City Manager and CAO in the city of Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, with a great background in local government and uh, really excited to talk to Doug today. Welcome to the show, Doug. Thank you, Nigel. I, I have to admit that this, believe it or not, is my first podcast. Oh, how exciting. Great, great. Happy to have you. You have so much experience in, in local government. I'm really excited to like dive in with you. So, so maybe a good place to start is just to kind of introduce yourself, uh, your background, like the work you've done in the public sector and beyond. Sure. Well, you got the, the name and title right, so I guess we can set that aside. <laughs> you know, of course, what exactly that title entails can be uh, pretty, pretty wide-reaching. In fact, this morning, while, while my, my position, generally I describe it as uh, back-of-the-house operations. So all of the, all of the levers for, for change in the organization reside within my responsibilities. But um, just before we got on this morning, I was, I was on a call uh, specific to how we handle the issues of homelessness here in Grand Rapids. And I imagine as we get to talking about COVID-19 and some of the, some of the things that we're having to, to deal with, that may be one of the things that comes up. But uh, on background, I was actually a journalism major and started my career through an internship with Orange County Parks and Recreation doing marketing and special events in the in the Orlando area and as i as i advanced through the government communications uh, as an intern had the opportunity to work in london for a semester with Fleischmann Hillard which is one of the largest pr firms in in the world actually uh, based out of st louis and came out of that uh, realizing that whatever it is that I did, I wasn't going to be able to work in the private sector. Mm. Uh, it, it just it just didn't it didn't resonate with me. The world of of column inches and earned media and making blind pitches to to media outlets that really didn't want to hear about the the latest and greatest developments in mid-sized hotel chains just didn't work. You know, I, I come from a family of public servants. Um, my dad was a 20-year chief of police and, and my mom was an emergency room nurse. So the public service piece of this just really resonated for me. And I came back and, and really focused on that and advanced through a couple of different communications jobs in a couple of Florida cities. And, um, in the late, uh, what, 2008, 2009, I, I had the opportunity to come up to Austin, Texas and serve as their director of communications. Uh, and that was, that was really a transformative opportunity for me because I was given the space to really redefine the definition of what what government communications is and could be 
and did a lot of work to start advancing the whole concept of, of what innovation should look like in local government. So yeah. you know, when I was, I would say I was just a couple of months into the job, I, I got a phone call from this woman named Jen and she wanted to talk to me about this idea that she had, uh, that she was launching and wanted to see if Austin could or, or wanted to be a part of it. So she came up to the office and we walked down to a coffee shop and sat down and she started talking to me about this, this idea of, of recruiting tech talent in teams to start embedding in local governments to help advance technology within local government. And wow. for, for those that are familiar with the civic technology space, uh, they'll be familiar with Code for America. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was Jen Palka. So I, I got involved in that uh, civic tech movement very early in my time in Austin. And it really... You know, it had a transformative effect on not just my trajectory, but my understanding of of the value that I might be able to bring, not just to local government, but to people outside of local government that that are motivated to make it better. Yeah, and that's amazing. And like, like as a founder of a GovTech company, like it's so exciting to to be with somebody that was early in the movement figuring out how to access tech talent and bring that knowledge into how can government do more with tech? So like, I would love to dive into that a little bit. If you oh, yeah. I, yeah. Ab- absolutely. I, the one thing that I, that I didn't mention is right around uh, 2003, I want to say is when I moved from Largo, Florida to Clearwater, Florida. And in my first year in Clearwater, I worked with a tech startup out of the San Francisco area that was just starting to do streaming video for like city commission meetings and things like that. Ah. Um, Established a a relationship with Tom Spengler. He was the founder of Granicus. Mm -hmm. And we were one of the first cities to join on with Granicus in um, really modernizing the way that we got city council information out out to communities. And, and that was probably my first foray into this space was having a relationship with civic technology where not only we were a customer, but we were a product advisor. And we had an opportunity to help build a product from the very beginning. And, and I saw a lot of value in that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're at the ground floor learning and implementing technology being brought into local government before. I mean, it's so early. This is so early in the movement. You're talking 2003, early 2000s, integrating tech into government. Like, what is your, I mean, this is this is kind of a sweeping question, but like, what is your kind of big picture analysis of how that's gone? technology, like the movement of the technology industry, bringing value into into the public sector, bringing value into the local government scene, the you know county, state, so on and so forth. Like your thoughts on that? <laughs> that, that, is a, that is a sweeping question. <laughs> you know, we could probably do a, a whole seminar on the evolution of the space during that time. I would love that. Let's do a series, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time. <laughs> um, well, you know, I mean, it's been it's been interesting. It, it's it's there's always this conversation about how how government in general lags the private sector, and and you know, I think that that's true. That remains true, and in, in uh, many, if not most respects. And if you look at the trajectory of the civic technology space, it's very similar. So, you know, when we started out, the approach was really no different than, you know, any other software development and sales approach, which is the developers would identify a need 
they build something and then they throw it in their briefcase and they carry it around and they try to sell it to local governments. And there really weren't a whole lot of startups in the space. So you were really talking about a, a limited number of big kind of institutional providers and the government agencies were, were typically just happy to have somebody that could provide them with something. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had kind of this big monolithic provider that provided a big monolithic solution. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the state of state of affairs with, with few exceptions, I would say leading probably all the way up through 2010, you know, I think Code for America really had a huge influence on the space. You know, their, their original concept of these embedded teams was 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 good for the time, um, but wasn't really a sustainable model. What it did was it forced participating local governments to think differently about their approaches. And that was really, that's, that's what excited me about our participation with them was not just that we were going to get some products out of it, but that it was going to help me demonstrate to my peers that there was a different way of going about identifying and implementing technology solutions. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll just talk honestly about that whole because yeah, Code for America, Code <laughs> for America had its own, you know, had its own kind of trajectory and rediscovery and redirection over time. And in fact, just this week, um, one of the original members, one of the original team members of, of Code for America, Abhi Namani, posted something on Twitter talking about the CivTech market. And uh, it, it kind of brought me back to some of the conversations that I had with Jen and her team back in, you know, between 2010 and probably 2013, where, you know, I, I, I was trying to explain to them that while they were working with kind of the marquee partners. So they were going out and working with Philly and Detroit and Austin and LA and San Francisco. Um, but they were building these products and then trying to figure out how to scale them. Mm-hmm. And the, the advice that I was giving them was, you need to understand what local government looks like. And this, this conversation will sound familiar to you, Nigel, because I told you this uh, the very first time that we met, that if you're elephant hunting, there's only so many elephants. Right. You know, your top 20 cities are your top 20 cities. And if you're going to build a marketable civic tech product, really, you know, they may be up on the marquee. But there's a hundred times the number of mid-sized cities and, you know, 400 times the total number of cities that you need to be thinking about if you want to build something that's going to be scalable and marketable that's as a right. product. That's exactly right. I mean, that, our, our whole mindset is like anywhere where there's density, right? There needs to be value add anywhere where there's density of people, where there's, you know, competing interest and, you know, institutions of local government that are making decisions for a broad group of people that are in a tight space, you need tech product that are going to help make that successful. So that's, I mean, I definitely hear that advice. That is spot right. on. Right. And, and you also have to understand that the, the structure of local governments, the aptitude of local governments is incredibly divergent. So, yeah, very early, say when I was working with 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 Tom and his team with Granicus, yeah, you know, one of the big challenges that they had was they were selling a a pretty um, at the time, I mean, a pretty groundbreaking tech product 
to city clerks. And anybody that's been in government knows that traditionally city clerks are not early adopters of technology. So, you know, understanding how to package the product, not just as a efficiency for city clerks in doing their work and talking about the transparency and communications and accessibility benefits of the product starts to bring other people into the conversation. You know, it brings in the communications director. It starts to bring in the city managers. It gets the interest of the city council. So you have to understand how to how to work the levers of local government and accept that it's not the same as what might be your your typical sales approach, where you know exactly who the point of entry is for a company or an organization to market your product because the point of entry very likely will be different with every organization that you go to. Man, I mean, Doug, this is such valuable information for the marketers of GovTech companies. I mean, it is understanding the levers and motivations of local government. Even if your product adds a ton of value to a specific day-to-day activity or to the strategic framework or to different components of, of the local government piece, right? Institution as a whole, understanding the sub institutions and their interrelatedness. Because when you're a GovTech company, you're generally like, you're pretty, pretty for sure for us anyway, for Dynamo, like very public sector oriented, um, but you have to be agile as a private sector actor, but you are still a partner. It's a tough thing, right? And I think it traditionally like gives a lot of venture capital, which is a direction I kind of want to hear your thoughts on. Like mm-hmm. it, give, it gives venture capital pause because what they see is this complex process that isn't going to scale fast. And so how do you finance these things? Right. Anyway, right. Kind of- First of all, you know, that, that became a very immediate uh, point of conversation within Code for America, for example, where they realized that sustainable change also meant that they had to really start attacking procurement change within local government. Right. Okay. So, oh, so okay. pressuring that from the outside in, and you know, that's still a, a point of conversation is, is modernizing procurement and increasing the agility on the local government side. But to your question specifically about civic technology, I mean, there's a reason why you've seen this increase in specific venture funds that are focused on, uh, you know, social change, social innovation, uh, civic technology and things like that, um, because there's a foundational difference. And I think the question that I asked you in that first meeting was, (laughs) are you building something that you want to grow or are you building something that you want to sell? Right. And that's that there's no judgment in that question, but you have to ask yourself that question because it's going to affect every decision that you make after that. You know, there, there were a number of products that came out of Code for America that, that they built to the point where it was ready to, where it was ready to exit and you had, one of the big companies in the space, like Acela, come in and and buy it, and off they went. Yep. Yep. And, 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 and I mean, that's the classic question is, you know, like at Dynamo right now, we're, we're doing a lot of product work, working with, working with our customers and, and learning exactly, like, so they understand what's possible with, you know, the real-time data feeds of all their databases in a single location and making it usable, Right. But it's like, how do you want to use it? Those data sets can be valuable to so many independent departments within the enterprise. Unpacking where all the value is out of the gate is tricky because you got to like target and make that that widget available to everybody so that you can finance the growth of the enterprise solution, right? Like, right. Well, 
And and that 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 actually raises another another kind of point of tension that folks in this space need to have their eyes wide open and be ready to manage, which is you've got to have a clear understanding of what you're willing to do and what you're not. Because, you know, I've seen cases where somebody tried to build to suit for every customer because they were so desperate and interested in just getting customers. Yep. Um, that they ended up building such a kind of vast and fag- fragmented product mm-hmm. that it collapsed under its own weight. Exactly. Um, so having clarity on what it is that you have, what it is that, that, that you're willing to do, and what are the areas where you know, where you know that, that, that you want to, to grow the product and expand on the product, is really important because, quite honestly, in some part because of people like me. <laughs> um, so you've got two different ends of the spectrum. So there's somebody like me who is always going to push. Now, I'd, I'd say that over time, I've learned to moderate that push because I want to make sure that these companies are successful. But then you have other folks who don't know what they don't know. They're not quite sure what they want. And they'll continue mm-hmm. to ask for things almost in perpetuity. So you have to understand what you want your product to be, what are your boundaries, and where's the space where you want municipal partners that can help you grow. For me, I'm always looking for, you know, for me, looking at the private side, I'm always looking for partners that are looking to grow. Mm-hmm. And I've learned to be much more respectful of their boundaries in the process. Sure. And will you unpack why you slide in that direction? Altruistically, as a public servant, I want local government to have excellent tools. And if I can help that happen, you know, I I understand that I have a kind of unique knowledge base that most of these companies don't and rather demanding that they understand before they get in the door, it's much more productive for the civic tech space writ large. If you invite them in and show them around. Yeah. The way I think about this, like you have a CIO, like a chief information officer, chief data officer, whoever's in charge of all of the software products the city uses, let's say, right. It's like, they kind of have to like, knit together these all these unique value props that have little small overlaps and it's like it's it's a pretty significant management of partner job i'm really curious like your thoughts on that like the evolution of the role of that individual who manages inside the institution all of those relationships and 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 what the different products are offering yeah i mean you can't buy everything Exactly. Um, because, I mean, it's inefficient just from an operational perspective, much less a you know fiscal perspective. Well, <clears throat> you know, I'd like to say that there's a simple answer to that. But, you know, I mean, the the nature and personality of, of IT directors and CIOs and, and city organizations runs the gamut as well. Um, totally. So... You know, recognizing you know, from a marketing perspective, I mean, recognizing when there just may not be a winning path because, you know, the model and the personalities that are in place just aren't going to give you that pathway, I think is important. But, mm-hmm. you know, so two things on that. One is really it kind of goes back to what I talked about with with Granicus, which is. You know, under, and this is kind of the, <laughs> it's funny, I'll take a little digression here. I've got, I've got two little girls and my little girls over the last couple of weeks have become obsessed with the greatest showman, uh, <laughs> um, which I, I'm actually okay with. It's a great message. And actually uh, for musicals, it's got some pretty good music. <laughs> um, but, and I am going somewhere with this. 
No, it's good. How old are they, Doug? <laughs> they are uh, three and eight. Three and eight. Yeah. Mine haven't seen that. I have I have seven and nine, and they haven't seen it, so I want to. Oh, you got to show you. You've got to show it. To me. It is a fantastic movie. Um, <laughs> I'm, taking, I'm taking notes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but the reason that I bring that up is the way that P.T. Barnum approached what he did was he was he was selling the experience he was selling the feeling and in this space you've got to understand that yes for you know we'll use dynamo as an example yeah i mean dynamo is is selling this ability to see downstream impacts of various uh, factors on property, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, both you know past, present, and future. So you get that predictive that predictive uh, benefit. You can't make the assumption that everybody makes that connection to a community's master plan. Sure. To overall community health. To how does this relate to the conversations that I have heard in my organization about food deserts? Mm-hmm. So it's vital for you to tell that story. You are the PT Barnum in that space. You've got, <laughs> you've got to help them make that connection and understand yeah. that this is a tool that is going to help you in all of these other spaces. Sometimes you have to spur people's imagination to get them excited about where the product can take them. Yeah. Um, That's great. I I have, I have, and they will remain, remain nameless. um, (laughs) But I, I had a very recent experience with a particular civic tech company. Um, and I was honestly taken aback with the conceit by which they approached their pitch, which is, you'll use us if you know what's good for you. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I... I'm somebody who sees the product and understands kind of the bigger picture of what their potential impact is. And quite frankly, in this case, there's somebody that I'm, I would be excited to figure out how we could incorporate them into our work. But that approach mm-hmm. has, has them on the shelf for me right now. Mm-hmm. I like them. I don't need them. So, you That's- know, Insightful. That's such good insight, man. That's yeah. so valuable. But uh, yeah, it's 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 Thank something you. that I that I really it motivates me. Yeah, it's same to hear to hear. It's like giving direction. Like you're giving direction on 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 the space, and you're a veteran of the space. It's just it's really this is really valuable. There's a two. Let's make this a two part interview. We're about halfway through, right? We <laughs> We, we've dove into civic tech and like, I want to nerd out on this for like hours. I right. like, like, as I said in the beginning, a series, like I'm not even joking. We should talk about <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> but you know, the two part component here, like I was hoping definitely to cover this and get some of your thoughts on it. But the other side, like literally the second question on like my 10 questions is your day to day work in Grand Rapids. Like, what does that look like? Mm hmm. So let's take all the things, you know, all the civic tech, all the things. I'd love to apply it a little bit, but also into the day-to-day issues that are unfolding as a result of COVID, the social equity movements, the recession that we're living in now, like the near-term future of, you know, the government dollars receding over time. Mm-hmm. Um, all the all the pieces coming together of what's happening in the economy right now. So maybe the start there is like some of the the hot button initiatives that are unfolding in Grand Rapids right now. Things that are happening. I know there's been some some significant social unrest. Like maybe speak to speak to some of that kind of the opening there of like what you guys are working on now. Wow. Um, 
Hmm. <laughs> I know it's, it's I, real. <laughs> it, it, it's going to have to be a multi-part conversation. I know um, it. I it's, uh, so, I mean, it depends on the day. Um, you know, on if I had to talk about what's on the what's on the big board right now, the fiscal issue, you know, Grand Rapids is an income tax city. So what we're going through has a has a very direct impact. You know, we don't we don't get income tax on unemployment. Right. Uh, and we're working right now through the question of how income tax is affected by mandatory governor's orders to stay home when someone's home may not be within the city. Super interesting. Yeah. So those are all things that, that on the fiscal side we're actively working through. But on the community side, uh, like you mentioned, they, 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 we, like many others, um, are facing significant pressure uh, for police and, and public safety reform. Mm-hmm. We are seeing a visible uptick in the the downstream impacts of, of the the economic issues I, I mentioned homelessness earlier you know it, it's it's interesting because from a societal standpoint it's not what we're finding is that what we see is not just kind of the traditional linear impact of homelessness which is, someone is either chronically homeless or they lose their job, they lose their home, they don't have a place to stay. But because schools are closed, for instance, we're seeing an increase in young people who don't feel safe at home who are sleeping on the streets. Yeah, well. So there are all these kind of smaller factors at play under the surface that that we're trying to navigate. Um, so it really, you know, like I said, it, it, it depends on the day. Uh, one of the other things that I've been involved with here recently is, and as a startup, you'll appreciate kind of applying the startup mentality to how we think about, um, community activation and special events and things like that. Absolutely. Uh, so this year, um, you know, I want to say at the end of July, uh, Art Prize announced that they weren't going to have their event this year. And that, that, uh, that has a massive local economic impact. Hotel rooms, retail, restaurant, all of that. I do. I do Art Prize every year. I yeah. It's an amazing event. So we there was there was a critical conversation with with city leaders and community leaders to talk about okay well what do we do and myself and and a couple of other folks um got together and kind of started hammering through ideas um of what we might do to not just fill the space but fill the space in a way that yeah, I don't want to sound too clinical about it, but in a way that provided us value, provided us information, kind of provided us data that we could that we could grow from, and something that was informed by the social unrest that we saw at the end of May and the beginning of June. Yeah, like you like show that you learned, right? <laughs> something like right. that. Yeah, right. So, so ultimately, we decided that we were going to cobble together the little bit of money that we had that was previously directed towards our prize, and we were almost going to run a startup incubator um, for how, how special event organizers could execute events under the current restrictions. So we we carved out five weeks of time. Uh, we put out a call for proposals for all of our event organizers, folks who weren't able to execute their events over the summer, and said, give us your, your best pitch for how you would do 
a version of your activity that worked within the current social distancing and personal pr protective guidelines. And we will seed it with up to $10,000. Awesome. And right now, from actually it launched last week. Well, th this is a podcast, so I shouldn't say last week. Um, it, it launched at the end of August. It'll run through uh, the end of September. And uh, we've got, I think at this point, about 37 scheduled activities and events, including a lot of these big events that folks have been used to going to, like our big uh, cultural festivals, where they're going to do kind of a miniature version of that and experiment with how they can do that in a way that that meet social distancing guidelines, because we don't know how long this is going to last. But when folks wonder, how can you how can you apply a startup methodology in government? That's a great example of how you can do that in an operational context and learn from it, yeah. help advance those those events and those event organizers. You know, one of the other goals was to make sure that artists and performers were getting paid. Yeah. Because they have been extraordinarily impacted by all of this. So that's one of the things that we have going on right now. Um, when we talk about the, the, the bigger social issues, the public safety reform and, and some of those, we're trying, to be, we're trying to be very thoughtful and deliberate about how it is that we go about that work. And that's an ongoing conversation. Yeah, the the uh, something with that, with like the the ongoing conversation and the events. Like, have you have you checked out Zen City at all? It's not usually in my my purview to like, you know, say a, drop a specific name of a product during a thing. But like, what they're, I'm working to get in touch with them because I see so much complementarity between our products. Because what they're doing is they they'll take this, they take it's basically like a social media the way that I understand it anyway, like they use all the different forms of social media with an AI algorithm to like understand sentiment. And you can actually like outreach almost like surveys or questions to your community. And then their responses, the words they use, the locations, all these different pieces come together and can actually provide leadership, city leadership with, with sentiment on the fly. Are, how do you feel about this, the park on the corner opening back up? Mm -hmm. People, People are like, no way. Or people are like, we'd consider it if, you know what I mean? X, Y, Z. And then you capture sentiment. That's such a neat thing to be able to actually understand where people are at in real time. Like it seems really relevant to like events and like incrementally opening back up. Right. Yep. But yep. then for us, our thoughts like, well, how does that overlay with the, the long-term trajectory and planning for how you like the influence and impact of those activities on, on things like property value or zoning or trying to reopen your commercial or whatever. Right. So there's like the long-term underlying property effects and economics and all that. But then it's like, well, I also need to know today what's happening with my people so I can make informed decisions about trajectory. So anyway, I wanted to throw that out because I, I thought that might be a useful thing to, to, to check out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been, I've been uh, familiar with them since, since their beginnings, oh, which, cool. which you yeah. might find is a is a recurring theme. I don't want to say from the very beginning, but when they <laughs> when they first kind of started actively marketing in uh, in the United States, one of the because they're in a, they're an Israeli company. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. When they first started really doing focus marketing in in the U.S. Uh, you know, one of their first trade shows was at the Alliance for Innovation Conference out in uh, Tacoma. Okay. And at that point, you know, some of the traditional early adopters had already signed on, like uh, Jim Keene and, and Palo Alto and a few others. And, uh, you know, I sat with them and they went through their product and I, I kind of, you know, I gave them a, a similar treatment maybe to what it is that I gave you at the beginning, which was... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this is great, but it's not ready, and here's why. Sure. Because, you know, at that point, they were controlling 
all of the, uh, for instance, all of the keywords. So like there was very little, um, very little uh, kind of user management of the system. Mm. All of the, all of the, the management of the system had to go through them. And I was like, Hey, that's not, that's not gonna, that's not gonna work for us. And I imagine that's going to be an issue for, for others. And I don't know where they're at now. That's, that's a conversation that we have to have. So, yeah. And, and that, you know, it's, it's interesting that actually was a similar issue that we had in the civic engagement space. So the online engagement space uh, early on, mm-hmm. um, you know, if, if you look back 2009, 2010, really you had two players in the space. You had Mind Mixer and then you had Bang the Table, which was a Australian company that was extending into North America. And Bang the Table had a lot of interesting kind of features and opportunities. The issue was it was an entirely kind of managed platform on their side. So they okay. did, they collected all of the information. They did all of the analysis. You know, they had this huge kind of heavy backend uh, administrative piece that we didn't need. I hired somebody to do, do community engagement. What I needed was the tools to be able to do digital engagement, get that feedback, and then we take care of doing all of the analysis. So we can't pay you $2,000 a pop for every engagement that we do. That's it. So um, and that's a recurring theme, like giving the flexibility to where's the sweet spot between having enough baked in information for however it's targeted, having it baked in so that it can deliver without a lot of work if you're an executive, perhaps, or something like that. But then mm-hmm. also having the ability for somebody who's a staffer to be able to go deep in the weeds and do their job better, right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to have to make a whole bunch of phone calls to try something. Because mm-hmm. one thing that I will do, <laughs> I have a funny story on that. So we, so we ran a whole trajectory with, with our various community engagement systems that we used, including building one ourselves that ultimately Granicus licensed. But working with Jay over at Public Input, you know, so there, and there's some similarities maybe to, to the work that you're doing. So there, there, Jay's a former planning guy. So he looks at Public Input through, or looked at Public Input through a very technocratic lens. And, and the system had all of these really kind of cool features on the back end so they're out selling the product we end up subscribing to the product and i told them that i that the first thing i was going to do is i was going to try to break it yeah <laughs> good and, and and i did <laughs> and so you know there were a couple of features that i decided okay this is one of those super cool things let's see how it works and I ran it through its paces and it didn't work. And they kind of sheepishly acknowledged when we started working through the issues that, well, I guess that's one of those features that nobody else is using. Mm-hmm. To which my response is, maybe that's not a feature that you need to sell. <laughs> Right. I mean, if that's creating overhead for you as a company, absolutely. That's you know, either either you need to refine it in a way where it's much more intuitive for the user and it works, or you need to let that feature go. You know, may, maybe maybe that's not the accessory that people want in their car. Sure. So, you know, I think that's, that's part of it as well is, is you want to, you want to listen, you want to have some partners that you can work with, listen to that will try things and that you have confidence will break them if they don't work. Yeah. Cause that's going to make you better. That's right. Those are the early adopters you want. That's all there is mm-hmm. to it. You want them to break it. I want yep. you to break it. Break, break. Hey. Break neighborhood intel. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Challenge accepted, Nigel. 
<laughs> I'm sure like when my uh, when my co-founder and, and head of product and CTO hears this, he's gonna he's gonna be like, You just told him to break it on the podcast. What the heck? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so circling back to the difficulties of our current economy, it's hard right now. That's all there is to it. And I you know, as as the government dollars recede, you know, vaccination hits the ground on Q4 or Q1, and we start to recover in earnest slowly throughout 2021. Like, hopefully, hopefully that's what's happening. It's an incremental, this feels like a marathon, you know, it's like the endurance stage right now. That's how I feel anyway. So here's the question is like, you have federal resources, like the state, the state's struggling, local units are struggling on revenue. You pointed that out, you're an income tax city. You can quantify, I'm sure, year-over-year differentials in income tax revenue for the city, mm-hmm. right? So you actually know your delta, I'm sure. Like all those things, like like there's the deltas are there for state governments, for local governments. And there was a one nice big slug that got put out from the feds in the CARES Act. CDBG got juiced by $5 billion. Like there's ways that the dollars hit that I'm sure are starting to get distributed. But the question is, you have these these issues unfolding right now, like there's things happening right now and there's dollars that you got to, you got to prioritize and distribute onto the ground where the problem is, right? Like where the things are unfolding. So the prioritization of that, like I'm curious of the current process of prioritization of how the, the COVID related resources get distributed. And then also like if there's technology that's helping move those dollars as fast as they can what is the way that that gets done? And like, it's got to be a difficult decision process. And then finding the, the intermediaries to actually move the dollars out from the feds through the state to the locals, out to the people ultimately. Like, how is that machine lubricated? And is it working? Is there tech that helps? That's, I mean, that's you're, you're only, you're really, only giving us 10 minutes to talk that. about that. I know, I know. It's t- like, it's, I should have hit that one at the 30 minute mark, probably. But um, I want people wanting more, Doc. We'll do more of these if there we get go. if we get the feedback. But uh, just like a high level, of that, like how is uh, it going? Not well. You know, again, yeah. when you talk about yeah. agility, you know the I don't know where to start on this. So you know the so there's a couple of there's a couple of things there. One is. You know, the, the states, the states put out a couple of things to local units that have helped, but they've been very directive. So it's been like to pay for public safety payroll. So there hasn't been a whole lot of meat on the bones for us from, from the state side. The, the CDBG money, it took us a while internally to refine kind of our, our list of, of buckets that we wanted to solicit for. But, you know, one of the complications that we've got is that the only thing that we received as a community of 200 some thousand people is the CDBG funds. And, of course, those have very specific restrictions attached to them or I don't want to say restrictions, but, you know, very specific areas where they can be invested. You know, the broader CARES funding, so kind of the big money dump, only went to communities of 500,000 or more. Which means that all of our money went into the county and the county can choose whether or not any of that money makes its way down to the local units. And, you know, I've seen I've seen some news stories where other local units have been similarly situated. And, you know, that's certainly complicated things. And part of that. Again, I'm just going to be completely honest. I mean, part of that has to do with interpretation and agility. So from a city standpoint, we very quickly put together a $39 million list of things that the city could implement with that money that had gone to the county. Ultimately, the county didn't want to give us $39 million. So, and part of it was practical, you know, I mean, there were things that they had on their list that we had on our list. So we had to deduplicate all of that, but it got whittled down to 17 and then it got whittled down to about 11 that was going to be 
set aside for all local units, not just uh, the city of Grand Rapids. And rather than take our list, accept our list, and provide us with the funding to start doing things, um, they're running the whole thing on a reimbursement basis, which means that local units are required to effectively front all of the money for anything that they want to do in this space without any certainty that it's going to be reimbursed. So it's loans, it's loans, not grants. Or I mean, they're, grants. they're, they're, wow. they're grants, but they're not guaranteed, which means we have to spend the money, turn in our receipts and wait yeah. to see whether or not we get the money back. And when you're already under financial stress, that's a pretty fraught position to be in. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you're probably, you know, the, the analogy is you probably got to put it on the credit card, right? And not know. Right. We'll not know <laughs> if you can pay it back. I mean, that. So, yeah, you know, locally, that's, yeah. that's forced us to be a lot more conservative in the things that we would have liked to have done. Now, when it comes to, oh, you know, when, when it comes to the application of, of, of technology, you know, one of the things that we did straight out of the gate, um, was front load our, our purchase of public input as an online engagement tool. You know, for me, that was a no brainer. I, you know, part, part of getting things done is, is knowing when, when the environment is ripe to pull the trigger. We knew that we, we needed to stand up digital engagement. And then we had this window of opportunity where, you know, there was a good likelihood that we were going to be able to get it funded uh, outside of the city's general fund. And we had a very present need. Um, if we're going to continue to engage with people, we're going to have to do it virtually for the time being. Um, so we took advantage of that opportunity um, to advance an objective that we already had on the board. So, you know, it hasn't all been, it hasn't all been liabilities. Some of it is, assessing this assessing the opportunities that might lie inside of the situation to do things that you wanted to do anyway. I, the, the other great example is telecommuting. Um, the, the, the irony there is that the week before the governor's stay at home order, we had a top management meeting. So there was the Friday before the order. We had a meeting with all of our top management to talk about a pilot teleworking program that we were going to launch in April with a, you know, with a limited subset of the, of the organization. And a week later we did, we started a much larger pilot, but I mean, it, it advanced something again that we already had on the board. So it, it's not all bad. And, you know, I think every organization needs to look at the opportunities that kind of, that are sitting between the couch cushions. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a velocity, there's a velocity that's been unleashed in a lot of ways, you know, like, like Dynamo, Dynamo, it pushed us into full remote and we've increased productivity on the engineering side. Like our operations are, are really, really strengthened actually in so many ways we miss each other, but you know, like, like, I, my sense is that there's a macroeconomic shift that a, a lot of the the parts of how this economy worked pre-COVID are not are not coming back well, sure. because of what we've learned. Sure, I mean there, there was a there was a story on NPR uh, just yesterday um, about the impacts on commercial real estate and whether or not folks are going to come back and fill all the space that they filled before. And, and like I mentioned. What's the impact for income taxes? Absolutely. You know, I'm an economist. I, I, I'm trying to think of like allegories, right? Like, like back when all the malls came in like the mall, like in the 80s, right? Like the late 70s, 80s, mm -hmm. like the malls happened. And everybody, like, ooh, retail at the malls and started going. And, or maybe it's even the 60s, whenever the malls really hit, Right. It like it sucked a lot of the lifeblood out of downtown commercial corridors, right? 
And it was like, oh, it can't just be retail anymore. We need bars and restaurants and like turn them into social hangout zones. And then there's some specialty retail mixed in and like some office mixed in and, and like the new normal slowly gelled over like the last 30 years, 40 years, whatever it's been. And now like now that thing's getting all shaken up again. <laughs> you know, you walk downtown, like we're based in Ann Arbor. I'm, I'm in the office now and, and I'm, I'm moving us out. Like that's what I'm up to. And, and it's like, it's, it's really different. You, you walk downtown. There was a sign that broke my heart. It was like, it said something like, um, thanks for a great 49 mm-hmm. years. And it's like, holy smokes. That's what we're looking at. And there's commercial, you know, open commercial signs in every window. And like, I don't want to leave on a negative note. It's just like, what are we going to do with our commercial corridors? Our, our state, the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, has worked so hard to invest in our commercial corridors, billions of dollars over the last decade to help help us build these out in terms of they're, they're beautiful. Michigan commercial corridors are looking beautiful. And now we have a moment where, where like a lot of the companies that did fill those doors are receding in terms of demand for location due to uh, remote work possibilities now. So anyway, there's, I, I look forward to that transformation because like my, my nerdy economist is like, well, what's going to be the next one? <laughs> well, figure you, it out. you know, I think part of it is already, you know, was already happening was the, the realization of the importance of residential in traditional commercial centers. You know, if, if I had to put on my predictive hat, it's going to be leaning in further into getting people to live in downtowns and a, a further leaning into the concept of co-working and collaborative spaces. You know, that that having a giant dedicated footprint just doesn't, it doesn't make sense from an economic standpoint, but it also, I don't want to say it, it robs people, but it certainly denies people the unusual opportunities that, that, that present themselves in a collaborative space. They don't exist when when you're kind of locked up within the four four walls of your particular company or office. You're spot on. I think you're spot on. There's like the in like the early the early adaptations are already presenting themselves. Like our local um, larger share space co working space. Mm-hmm. It's called Cahoots. One of them, and they they've put out their advertising where they are. And I definitely seeded this. Like I was, I started bugging them about it immediately. Cause I was like, what are you guys going to do? Like, I think that it would be really neat to be able to have my, my team drop in once a month or once a week where we can actually be together, have a happy hour after work and still, but like at distance or whatever's comfortable at the time. And like, if you guys have a really good cleaning right. regime and make me feel secure and safe about it, and have things set up, right. like I'll pay for that. Right. And they like, they responded, like they now have like all these different programs where you can do almost exactly that with varying team sizes. Yep. So they're just totally adapting. Yep. It's really cool. Yeah. So I, you know, again, I, I feel like there's, there's a lot of opportunity that lies in the disruption. You got it. You know that. That that applies to everything we've been talking (laughs) about. That is a good that is a good close. Thank you so much, Doug. Like it's so good to tap into your brain and the history of everything you understand about the movement and in government technology and hear about what you guys are doing in Grand Rapids. Keep hammering it in Grand Rapids and and I'm just I'm really looking forward to working with you. I'm I'm really glad that um I got such a Yeah man, we're having fun. We're having fun. and, yep. and you gotta let me. It's you gotta fantastic. let me know how this it goes, really so I know whether or not I'm a I'm a podcast star or not. That's oh, a, I'm I'm sure you will be. We're gonna give you. I mean, every GovTech company should hear this one. This is a unique one, and it's applied to government. So I think it's like my thought is like this is relevant to to local units across the whole country that want to think differently about how technology may integrate into their uh, into their fold as they kind of mm-hmm. relaunch 
during this time when things are yeah. changing so much, right? It's a different way of thinking. It's like you put that out there. So that's really next, next time we I get really, next really time we get together, that. maybe we'll we'll kick off with uh, with a conversation about the whole open data piece of this. Ooh, I love that. Yeah, I love that. Let's do that. That sounds great. We'll have you back soon. You got it, man. Really Talk to you soon. It, Doug. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ahead of the Curve, and special thanks to Doug for joining us today. Next week, we'll be joined by Max Sims, president of East Greensboro Now, a community development corporation committed to the minority entrepreneurial development, community development, and the economic development of East Greensboro, North Carolina.